Well, good evening and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. I'm coming to you over EWTN and we're broadcasting from the offices of the Coming Home Network International near Zanesville, Ohio. Appreciate you joining us on this program. We Every week we do this program because we love Scripture and we recognize very clearly that our Lord is trying to speak to us through His Word. But the theme of Deep in Scripture uh, is an emphasis that, uh, that we need to make sure that we are interpreting Scripture correctly. And so Deep in Scripture does not mean an idea that we uh, individually, guided by the Spirit, can open the Bible and therefore find out what is true. We can The, the danger of that, of course, is we end up with a bazillion different interpretations. We recognize that Scripture is a part of the great gift that God has given to us through His church. It's a part of this, the wider sacred tradition and that to understand Scripture correctly, we need to look at Scripture in, within the great rule of faith that we've been given by the Holy Spirit through the church. And so for this program, I invite guests to join me who have a background in scripture or theology or pastoral experience to talk about their favorite scriptures. And during this particular year, in this theme on Deep in Scripture, we're looking at verses that have particularly inspired us to follow Jesus, maybe even guided our vocation. This is the year of the priest that our Holy Father has asked us to focus on. And so that kind of drives this program. We're not always talking about priesthood, but we're talking about how has God called us to follow him. And so I've asked my guests to choose scriptures. Any of my guests probably could uh, choose a lot of different verses that uh, inspired them. But, you know, what, what one or two or three, or in this case, on this program tonight, our guest has chosen an entire chapter of 1 Corinthians, chapter 2 we'll look at. And it's appropriate because that entire chapter fits together. It, 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 it's not good to, um, to, to pick one verse out of it. It's, the whole context is important. Now, our guest for tonight's program is Dr. Mary Healy. And it's great to have Dr. Healy back with us. She recently joined the Coming Home Network International at our St. Paul conference that we had in Columbus back in May. If any of you are interested in more about the great conference we had, Dr. Healy spoke, Dr. Hahn, Jeff Cavins, myself, uh, Father Mitch Pacwa. If you go to the Coming Home Network website, chnetwork.org, you can find out information about the tapes that we have available from that conference. I highly recommend that those tapes, those talks together. Our theme was was St. Paul Catholic. It was a great uh, weekend. And Dr. Healy spoke at that conference. And let me read for you her background. Some of you are not able to go to the website, deepinscripture.com, to read about what Dr. Healy brings to our discussion. Dr. Mary Healy is the Associate Professor of Scripture at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit and Senior Fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. She's a graduate at of the University of Notre Dame. She earned an MA in theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville and then completed her doctorate in biblical theology at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome. Dr. Healy served for several years as the coordinator of Mother of God Community, a lay Catholic community in Gaithersburg, Maryland. She's the author of Men and Women Are from Eden, a study guide to St. To, uh, not, not jump ahead, right, Dr. Healy, to, to John Paul II's Theology of the Body. She's also co-editor of three books on biblical interpretation, 
She addresses conferences nationally and internationally on topics related to biblical interpretation, the theology of the body, and the spiritual life. Dr. Healy is currently co-editing the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture, a new series of commentaries that interpret Scripture from within the heart of the church and is author of its first volume, The Gospel of Mark. And so you can see why I invited uh, Dr. Healy to join us. Her whole commitment as an editor for this new Catholic commentary is exactly in line with what we try to do here on Deep in Scripture. Again, the uh, website is deepinscripture.com. If you'd like to ever give us a call, you can do so at 800-664-5110 or the regular Coming Home Network number is 740-450-1175 or you can email me at marcus at deepinscripture.com. And as usual, if you go to the website, you can click on a link and actually watch this program broadcast live on the Internet. Now, Dr. Healy chose 1 Corinthians chapter 2, on the website, we've chosen not every verse from that uh, chapter to post, but I, I'm going to read to you the entire chapter. It's only 16 verses. It doesn't take that long, but you need to hear the entire context. And <clears throat> you know, behind this verse is the, the, this idea that we are equipped by God and that a good part of our understanding of the graces that God gives us, the blessings, the information, the knowledge, the understanding of God and our relationship to him, a lot of that is a gift of grace and our responding to that. And it's not our, it's not our position to judge why God gives grace and distributes it amongst people the way God does. That's his prerogative. That's his wisdom. That's, that there's a mystery in that. So we don't get caught up in judging why one person has received the grace to understand and maybe another one doesn't seem to have received it. That's not the issue. What is more an issue is recognizing within ourselves and that we each have been given a gift by the Spirit to understand God, to turn to obey and to follow. And so the question is, how have we responded? And Paul deals with that as well as other issues in this chapter. And when Dr. Healy joins us after the break, we'll get into our discussion. But before that, in case you don't have a Bible in front of you, why don't you follow along and I'll go ahead and read 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul writes, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God in lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in much fear and trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glorification. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man conceived, what God has prepared for those 
who love him. God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what person knows a man's thoughts except the Spirit of the man which is in him? So also no <clears throat> excuse me. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is from God, that we might understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who possess the Spirit. The unspiritual man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, and you're hearing me on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Mark your calendars and pack your bags. The Global Catholic Network is bringing you another EWTN family celebration. On August 8th and 9th, we'll be in Birmingham, Alabama, celebrating this year's theme, Rejoice in Hope. Join some of our most popular hosts, Marcus Grodi, Raymond Arroyo, Barbara McWigan, Father Wade Menezes, The Donut Man, and more. We'll have inspirational talks, Holy Mass, Family Corner, a kid's concert by The Donut Man, and a live taping of a special Crossing the Goal with Danny Abramowitz. For more information on this free event, log on to EWTN.com or call 205-271-2989. The EWTN Family Celebration, August 8th and 9th in Birmingham, Alabama. We'll see you there. Here's that number again for more information, 205 271 2989 or log on to EWTN.com. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. Wow. A microphone problem today. Sorry, apologize for that. Uh, this is Marcus Grodi, your host, blaring to you from uh, Zanesville, Ohio. I'm <laughs> uh, doing that especially so the producers can, uh, can work with that microphone. You heard during the break an ad for this upcoming family celebration for EWT. And I just want to take a moment to, to remind you of that. This is a neat thing. It's all free. You can go to Birmingham, Alabama, spend Wednesday, excuse me, Friday through Sunday night and hear live presentations by myself, Raymond Arroyo, Deacon Bill Stettelmeyer, Barbara McGuigan, Father Maiden Menensis. We'll have Holy Mass. We'll have a lot of things going on, um, all on the theme of Rejoice and Hope. If you've not been to one of the celebrations, and if you can, I strongly encourage it. If you want more information, you can go to EWTN.com, but also you can give us a, give the EWTN a call, 205-271-2989, and find out more information about hotels and how you can get involved. All right, thank you. I think we've got the microphone in uh, back in line. Uh, Dr. Healy, are you there? I'm here. Glad to be with you. I was hoping I didn't scare you away with the way the microphone was responding. <laughs> no. Well, that's live radio, and that's uh, our great technology we have. Thank you for joining us, Mary. Are, now, are we, are we talking to you? You're up in Detroit at the seminary? 
Well, I'm actually at my home in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Okay. All right. And, uh, of course, Ypsilanti is, uh, that's, is that where the, 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 um, uh, the Family of God community is? Oh, the Word of God Word community of God. And, and the Word of Life community are both here. That's right. Okay. And uh, so that's a very strong Catholic region of southern yes, Michigan. Yes, it is. We have the Sisters of Mary, Mother of the Eucharist. We have so many wonderful Catholic works going on here. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. There's, you're very much involved with scripture study and involved with publishing some great resources. Um, and I'm particularly excited about the new Catholic commentary that you're working on. Um, thank you. There's uh, it's funny, the, the Catholic commentary that I always recommend to people on radio is one that's out of print. Hmm. And it's almost of the exact same title, but it was published in 1950s in England, hmm. that, that big hmm. one-volume Catholic yeah, commentary. One it's wonderful, but it's out of print and up, out of date. And so it's great to see that what you're doing is replacing that with a, with a very trustworthy new volume. Yes, it's desperately needed. A, a, a commentary series that will really help Catholics connect Scripture with Catholic doctrine, with the liturgy, with um, daily life, as a, a Christian life. So that's what we set out to do in our series. And I'll say it's not just for Catholics, because when I was a Protestant minister studying Scripture, the problem was uh, that I was limited in, in my own understanding of Scripture and did not know what Catholics faithfully understood about Scripture often. And sometimes mm -hmm. when I went to the local library or bookstore and picked up a book to help discover the Catholic view of Scripture, some of those weren't very faithful. Yes, as you well, probably are well aware, um, biblical research is a kind of a story of wheat and weeds. You have to oh, yeah. be able to sift through the wheat from the weeds. Yeah, and I don't want to mention any names of some of the bad stuff because somebody might go out and look for it. We don't want them to. <laughs> no. We want them to go to the good stuff. Now, I, I asked you uh, to pick a, a scripture for us. You chose chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, maybe right in, in, off in front, Mary. Why, why that particular chapter for you? Well, I, I have to tell you first off that picking a favorite scripture from St. Paul is it's like picking uh, a favorite family member. There are so many of St. Paul's passages that have deeply impacted my life. So I actually thought about it for weeks and found it very hard to choose one. But I, I finally I came back again and again to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I, I knew I had to do this one. This scripture came alive for me at a certain point in my life when I experienced the reality and the power of the Holy Spirit, and particularly the Holy Spirit making real to me who Jesus is and what he has done for me. And as I studied that scripture and I went on to um, do a doctorate in biblical studies, I ended up deciding to do my dissertation on this chapter, oh, wow. actually on verses <laughs> 6 to 16 of this chapter. I ended up writing 300 pages on it, on those 11 verses, and really when I got to the end, I felt like I had just begun to scratch the surface of it. Well, now you're making me feel real sheepish because uh, <laughs> I haven't done a dissertation on this passage. Uh, and I know myself, having done you know large papers on passages, how do you condense it into 50 minutes or so is difficult. But I, I couldn't agree with you more that there's a lot in this passage. Uh, yes, the, the more you dig into it, the more it opens up. And I begin to see there's 
teaching here on the Holy Trinity. There's a lot here about anthropology, who is man, what is a human being. Mm -hmm. There's a lot about the foundation for Christian morality, about um, the basis for our life in community, in in the church. There is um, teaching about spirituality, about what it means to be living in the Holy Spirit. So really, all of these things, practically every department of theology is contained, at least in seed form, in this passage. And as I've looked at this passage over the year, like you said, there's many angles of this, and and I'm going to let you decide which facet of this you you would like us to focus on. I've often uh, seen in this the the reality that we go through uh, multiple conversions from being an unspiritual person uh, to becoming a, a, a man of faith, a spiritual person that has the spirit and but there's still that continued need of conversion or we can kind of go backwards. Yes, that's right. There's always more. Yeah. Well, one of the things about this passage that is striking is the first four or five verses where Paul talks about how he proclaimed the gospel to Mm -hmm. the Corinthians. And really, if you think about it, the message that he had to proclaim is just as absurd today as it was then. He had to say, a crucified criminal, um, in his case, who died just a few decades ago, is Lord of the universe, is Messiah and Savior. And he, he, said, he said to them, I resolve to preach nothing else than that basic kerygma, that basic message of the gospel, that God so loved you that he gave his only son to die for you and that he's risen from the dead and he's poured out his Holy Spirit upon you. And I think um, something that we as Catholics have to come back to again and again is the need for clear preaching of the unvarnished message of the gospel, Mm -hmm. because it really has a power. I mean, that's what I experienced in my own life. It, it, It has a power to bring you to fall in love with Jesus and to, to say, wow, I know now that he is the pearl of great price. He's the treasure. I wouldn't want to trade anything for him. I want to give my whole life to him. And then that becomes the basis of a whole life in Christ, a life of active discipleship. And, um, you know, Pope John Paul II made a very astute comment in his encyclical on catechesis. He said, many Catholics have been baptized and catechized without ever being evangelized. Yes. And what he meant by that is that they have never received or heard the basic kerygma in a way that, you know, they may have heard it here and there, but they never really heard it in a way that deeply impacted their life, in a way that moved them to fall in love with Jesus. And he said, you know, when that occurs, it's it's like receiving the upper stories of the immense edifice we have of all the beauty of Catholic doctrine and Catholic tradition and Catholic spirituality, but without the foundation. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, when you have the upper stories without the foundation, there's a weakness. There's a potential that faith can falter in times of difficulty. If if you don't have the foundation, one of the problems that I see happening in our work and in my own experience is that um, in time you, you, you forget or don't understand why it is you believe certain things. 
Yes, that's you, right. You've just kind of picked them up along the way, or you know, sister such and such, or some pastor, or some book. But if you don't have the grounding to understand why this is true, then, um, boy, my microphone's really going crazy today. Then um, a person can be very easily swayed uh, away right. into other things. Yeah, I think that's particularly true of the church's moral teaching. If it's been presented, or if people have heard it only as a, a series of moral injunctions, and they don't have that deep foundation of knowledge of Christ and, and life in Christ, then it's not a matter of deep conviction. And then when they're challenged, as we see they're dramatically challenged in the world today, then um, people fall prey to false ideas about morality and, and misleading ideas, and that gives the potential for falling into sin. Behind this verse, chapter 2, verse 2, which you read, if we go back to chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with elegant wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Again, there's this emphasis on the cross. And what I find interesting in that, Mary, is that you know, when we ask ourselves, why does the Christian faith rise up above the other religions of the world, Buddhism, Hinduism, and the list goes on, for me, the, the number one bottom line issue is he's alive. Yes, and so, amen. Pardon? Amen, that's true. He's alive. I mean, that's the issue. He's alive. In other words, it's interesting that Paul isn't saying that, for I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him risen. And, and when I was a Protestant, I remember always bemoaning Catholics. Oh, you've got him on the cross again. There you are. You know, don't you believe that he's risen? And, of course, that's, that, that's a false dichotomy. Right. But could you address that? Well, the, the, they are just two aspects of one mystery. The, the resurrection presupposes the cross. The cross is that by which that act of love in which Christ laid down his life for us, bringing into time and space the eternal, passionate love of God for his people. But God vindicated Jesus' act of obedience and fidelity by raising him from the dead. And as Paul says, he was crucified for our sins <clears throat> and raised for our justification. So to separate that mystery and to neglect one side or the other would be to neglect an absolutely central foundational aspect of our faith. And, and of course, today, I'd say maybe the aspect that people like to downplay more is the cross, mm -hmm. because it, it's painful to think about suffering and, and to think about our own share in the cross of Christ. It's easier to think about happy and um, happiness and joy and, and <clears throat> the, the life of the resurrection. But there's no resurrection without the cross. Yeah, we went, through a, we went through a long period of time in biblical scholarship where many of the more liberal theologians were, were, were throwing questions on the resurrection. Um, and, of course, without the resurrection, then the crucifixion has no meaning whatsoever. He, Paul would not have been proclaiming the cross if Jesus hadn't risen. That's what gave meaning to the cross. Um, so it's, as you said, they are... They're two sides of the same coin, if you will. 
I mean, they, they definitely go together. Preaching the crucifixion gives meaning to the resurrection. Preaching the resurrection gives meaning to the cross. Without either one, then as Paul says later in 1 Corinthians, we're fools. Uh, you know, if, if, if this, this issue of resurrection, if it isn't real, then then we're fools in this whole mess. That's the foundation of it. But again, as you go, as you pointed out, you know, looking at the crucifixion, um, the aspect of of Christ in us, and looking at the crucifixion, then as he says in Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ, and so it has a direct impact on understanding who we are in Jesus. Yes, one of my favorite uh, passages of Paul, in fact, this is one that I thought about choosing, is in Philippians 3, where Paul says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as refuse, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And then he goes on, um, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so you see clearly there that Paul recognizes that the work of God in his own life is to reproduce the life of Christ in him. That all his sufferings that, that he goes through as a, an apostle, um, a, a missionary on behalf of Jesus Christ, the, the beatings, the imprisonments, the sleepless nights, the rejection, all of those things are in a mysterious way a, a participation in the redeeming act of Jesus Christ. You know, he realizes he has this privilege of actually joining with Christ and being a means by which his grace is dispensed to other people. But at the same time, he's, a share, he's sharing in the resurrection of Jesus, too, and he knows that, that uh, the life of Jesus, risen from the dead, is already present in him in this life, but it will be completely and, and fully present in him at the end of history, at the resurrection of the dead. So, so Paul has a very personal, very experiential sense of Jesus crucified and risen, present in his own life, and the pattern of, of Jesus' life being reproduced in him. And of course, that's true for all of us, too, mm -hmm. not just for Paul. I think we're going to take another break. I'm during the break, try and do some fine-tuning on the microphones. But Mary, when we get back, if you could, could you address in verses 6 all the way through chapter 3, verse 4, we see Paul uh, delineating within the community uh, groups of people. The mature, he talks about... Um, the spiritual man, the unspiritual man, and men of the flesh. Mm -hmm. um, when we get back, could you talk about those? Uh, yeah. What he means by these different people within the body of Christ. Let's take a break. This is Marcus Grodi, your host on Deep in Scripture, and you're hearing us on EWTN, the Global Catholic Radio Network. Do not forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 o'clock Eastern Time.
Written by Carl Adam, Roots of the Reformation gives a historically sensitive and accurate analysis of the cases of the Reformation that stands as a valid and sometimes unsettling challenge to the presuppositions of Protestants and Catholics alike. This valuable resource is a powerful summary of the issues that led to the Reformation and their implications today. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host. I'm joined this evening by Dr. Mary Healy, and we're examining 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And just before the break, I suggested, uh, Mary, that talk a little bit about those descriptions that St. Paul uses in this passage, basically to talk about different people, or or what is he talking about when he uses in verse 6, the mature to whom we impart wisdom, and then later he uses the term the unspiritual man, the spiritual man, and also men of the flesh. Well, that's a good question, because those categories have often been misunderstood in biblical scholarship. Sometimes they have been described as Paul creating kind of a classification among Christians and speaking of a certain elite, those who are mature and spiritual and those who are not elite and the elite get certain teachings. And I think all of that is really a, a complete misunderstanding of what Paul is doing here. And to understand what he's doing, I think we have to get a little background on the church in Corinth. And I think really this letter, this first letter to the Corinthians is in a way the most encouraging work of the New Testament, because we look at the problems that we have in the church today. We, you know, we got a lot of problems. <laughs> we can admit that. It's because but I'm look here. At That's Paul. the reason. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, we're all sinners, you know, and we're not, right. we haven't arrived yet. Right. But look at what Paul was facing in Corinth, a church that he had just founded four or five years before he wrote this letter. There was dissent. There was gross immorality. There were people coming up to receive the Eucharist, living in disregard for the moral teachings of the Church. There were liturgical abuses. There was disregard for the poor. There was serious um, disunity among the people in the congregation. So practically every problem (laughs) you can name, they had. And Paul in this letter is really giving them the key to uh, the resolution of their issues. And I think in this passage in chapter 2, in a way, is the heart of what he's telling them. He's not just telling them, you know, shape up and you got to do better and start getting along with each other. He's giving them the foundation, the, the principle, the basis by which their whole lives can be transformed. And that basis is basically the Holy Spirit revealing to them the reality of Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father given in him, in the act of love in which he died, in a way that deeply impacts the life of the believer, such that they are changed from within and they begin to relate to each other in a different way. So when he talks about these different kinds of um, Christians, uh, the the mature and, and spiritual, which are synonyms, the mature and spiritual, and then the unspiritual, and then the fleshly, it's a call to maturity. He's not saying... You can be divided into these three categories. He's saying, I'm calling you to fully appropriate and live by this gift 
of grace, of salvation in Christ, of the Holy Spirit, that you have been given. Another way of putting that is saying, he's saying, look, you've received the Holy Spirit. You were baptized. You heard the gospel and believed in it. But you have not really fully internalized and appropriated that grace that you've been given. And in fact, their preoccupation with wisdom that he chastises in chapter 1, and their their infighting with each other proves the fact that they have not fully appropriated the gift of the Spirit. So he he tells them, and and really uh, the heart of the passage is in verse 9, and it's a quote that people love to quote. It's, It's a beautiful verse. It says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, the thing is that that verse is often quoted by itself, but really the sentence is not complete without the first part of verse 10, where he says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. In other words, when he says what eye has not seen or ear heard, he's not just talking about heaven. He's talking about the reality that we have already been given in Christ that the Holy Spirit makes us aware of that. He makes it real to us by changing our life through the grace of Christ. And that becomes the basis for a whole different uh, way of conducting ourselves in relation to each other. So Paul is talking about a, a, a foretaste of heaven, but he's talking about what we've already been given even now. And then he goes on in the rest of verse 10, For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And there's really a lot packed into that sentence, too, because he's, first of all, he's talking about the Spirit as a person. It's clearly an understanding that the Holy Spirit is a person, um, not just a principle or attribute of God. So there's a, a Trinitarian theology there. And he's saying the Spirit searches the depths of God. In other words, there's, there's an activity of, of knowledge going on in the very heart of God among the members of the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit makes that heart of God known to us. In other words, he reveals to us the infinite depth of love in the heart of the Father, which is the basis for the Father giving us his Son to die for us. In fact, I think it's even implied there, Paul is saying the Holy Spirit brings us into that knowledge and love that is going on forever in the heart of the Trinity, or as the Catechism calls it, the exchange of love that goes on forever between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Paul is telling these folks in Corinth, saying, do you know the gift of God? Do you know what you have been given, that you have been brought into the very life of God? You have been delivered from your former life of ignorance and darkness and sin, you have been brought into an an infinite exchange of love. So if you lay hold of that, if you base your life on it, if you begin to to walk under the influence of that Holy Spirit and and to keep on um, fixing your eyes on the gift that you've been given, then your problems are going to find their resolution. That's the heart of, of what Paul is telling them. You know, when I've looked at this passage, uh, and, and you're right, the biblical scholars from all different ilks have uh, have looked at these categories, if you will, 
differently. And again, with that background in Corinth, you know, one of the problems then and now is that people within the church do sometimes divide each other up, at least in their own minds, uh, on who are the mature and who aren't, who are the spiritual, who are the unspiritual, who are of the Lord, who are of the flesh. And often they're wrong, not only about yeah. other people, but about themselves. Yes, isn't that true? Yeah. And we are sometimes the, the least competent judges of ourselves. Oh, yeah. And, you know, if you, if you look at this passage and put, you know, asterisks around those phrases, then you can almost see him being a bit cynical in, in a way. I mean, those that think of themselves as the spiritual ones, um, or, and then look down their noses at those they label as the unspiritual ones. And the reality is, as Paul begins chapter 3, he says, you know, I couldn't address any of you as spiritual men, but as men of the flesh. You know, those of you even that thought of yourselves as mature, maybe had the big, the longer robes and, and walked with the puffed out chest, you know, well, wait a second here. You know, the, the reality is for us to experience, any of us, to experience what he's talking about in this passage, we have to have the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ we see in Philippians 2. He did not grasp the right that he had as, uh, as God, but humbled himself uh, even to that of a servant. I mean, that's what it takes for us to then be able to experience the blessings that he talks about here that we receive only from the Spirit not from the wisdom of men. Uh, but to do that, we have to be open to what he has to give us through the Spirit. Yes. Yeah, clearly here Paul is um, bringing down the Corinthians a notch. And, of course, all of us who read this in their own estimation. And he's reminding them of how uh, they have nothing that they haven't been given. So he's bringing them up in their estimation of God and what God has done for them, down in their self-estimation, and by calling them fleshly, of course, he doesn't mean, he's not referring primarily to sexual sins there. Sometimes people limit it to that meaning. But he's saying, you are acting according to merely human thinking. And that directly leads to division. So, I mean, for Paul to, to think some people have used his words to create division <laughs> or categories, he would, yeah. he would be horrified at that idea. Yeah. Yeah. His whole point is saying, you have to stop thinking like human beings, just like Jesus said to Peter after Peter told Jesus he didn't like the idea of going to the cross. And, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking as man thinks and not as God thinks. Every one, one of, of the, us. I'm sorry. One of the primary ways that it, it, human beings think according to human reason is we don't like the cross. We yes. don't like any kind of suffering. We don't like humility. <clears throat> yeah, the... The um, every one of us, therefore, in like the Corinthians, needs to uh, discern this mind of Christ that he says we have, and that involves our willingness to grow. Uh, I'm thinking of a parallel passage in Hebrews chapter six, where you know, I'm one of those that thinks Paul wrote Hebrews, and uh, <laughs> you know I'm not going to. You know, I'm not going to throw that out as a de facto fact, but I think the early church believed that, and I do too. But anyways, at the beginning of 6, he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, 
not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God with instruction about ablutions, laying out of hands, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. And he, he talks about this need for us, I mean, to, to continue to grow. And, and I think the danger is that, um, especially amongst Catholics and Christians of traditions that have a lot of tradition, you know, and other rituals and uh, sacramental life, and that they can believe that they've arrived because they were confirmed. And, yeah. you know, I learned the basic stuff in, in Sunday school, and then I, at age 13, we went through catechism, and then I became a member of the church. I went through the rite of passage, kind of the Christian bar mitzvah. And then we've arrived, and they think, therefore, that they are the spiritually mature, when in fact they need to move on. Yeah, such a grave mistake. And, you know, there's a real paradox in the Christian life, because in one sense, we are always to be children. We're always beginners. The Christian life is always new. You know, I, I think of myself as I wake up every morning, in a certain sense, I wake up a pagan, I have to become a Christian again. <laughs> By praying, by turning to the Lord, by reminding myself my life is not my own, it's His, by receiving from Him, receiving the sacraments, etc. And yet, at the same time, there's a way that we are called to mature. And, and Paul says a lot about that. Later in 1 Corinthians, he says, Be not babes in your thinking, but in thinking be mature. And here in chapter 2, he's calling them to maturity. And, and in the passage from Hebrews that you quoted, so uh, there is a way that we have to recognize there's always more. There's more growing that we need to do. There's more entering into the mystery of who God is and what he's done for us that we have to do. There's a deeper putting off of sin. There's a, a deeper recognition of our own poverty, our own nothingness, our, our need for the cross. And, of course, the saints are, are the great exemplars because the saints are like children in certain ways. You know, they, they have a, a, a joy a humility, a receptivity like children, and yet they have a tremendous maturity, a tremendous depth of wisdom, a <clears throat> tremendous um, um, holiness that comes from maturing it in the Christian life and allowing the Holy Spirit to continue to do His work of sanctification. So we got to do both. Oh, that's right. And one, it's all by grace. One of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite theologians, uh, uh, Father Garrigou Lagrange, I think he taught at the school you went to, didn't he? Was he at the Gregorian? Yes, he did. He taught at the Gregorian 100 years ago, I think. Um, or else he was one of John Paul's teachers, I think. But he makes a statement in his book on the three ways of the spiritual life in which he says, in the ways of God, he who does not progress loses ground. Mm. And I, I think that's a profound reality. Mm -hmm. that we never reach a stage of maturity in which we therefore can then kick off our shoes and sit back and say, I've arrived, is that the minute we do that, we're losing ground because there's a constant spiritual battle. There's a sense in which Paul, in this passage, when he's talking about the unspiritual man and the spiritual man and the man of flesh and the mature and the babe, all of those describe me, yes, each of right. us. There, there are aspects of my spiritual development at this very moment that may, by grace, be progressing. But there are other aspects because of my desire to move into sin or selfishness or in which the flesh side of me is fighting against the spiritual side. 
you know, and we're in many ways we're all drawn to that passage at the end of Romans 7 when Paul says, who can help me? You know, after all that struggle he talks about in Romans 7. Yes, right. And in Philippians 3, um, Paul himself, you know, the great apostle, the great evangelist, he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on yeah. to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So Paul himself recognizes that he has a ways to go, that he himself has to continue to mature in his spiritual life. Yeah, I love that when I was young, a good old Protestant preacher, I remember, I loved him. And uh, I'm sure it's been, this has been said a gazillion times, but I remember that old preacher from the pulpit saying, whenever you point a finger, you got three pointing back at yourself. <laughs> and, and in this, in Paul, he's not delineating people within the congregation. And as you said in Philippians 3, he's not just pointing a finger at others needing to grow. He is one of the greatest models for each of us to recognize our need to follow the Spirit. And that means growing. The Spirit means growth. We see this in all the way back in the Old Testament, create within me a clean heart, O oh God, to renew a right spirit within me. I mean, this is this constant need for renewal. We're going to take another break. And Mary, if you would, for the last part of the program, particularly if you'd like, he talks a lot about the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit within us. Talk a little bit about that, particularly in a practical way for our audience, and how the reality and knowledge of that in our lives helps us grow into maturity as we seek to follow Christ. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grote. I am joined by Dr. Mary Healy, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International and Marcus Grote, I invite you to join us for our seventh annual Deep in History conference coming this fall to Columbus, Ohio. This year, we will begin on the rock, looking to understand the question of authority, the pillar and bulwark of truth. Join us the weekend of October 23rd as we bring together another exciting list of speakers. For more information, go to deepinhistory.com or call us at 800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grote, your host. I'm joined this evening by Dr. Mary Healy. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-16, through 16, and as as Dr. Healy mentioned earlier, she did her entire dissertation on this, 300-plus pages. So there's a lot in this passage. But, uh, Mary, I mentioned before the break, he talks about the Spirit a lot, how important it is to recognize. I mean, a lot of people live as not as if they're Trinitarians. I mean, they talk a lot about the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. But how does the Holy Spirit, in fact, help us to grow in this maturity? Yes, you know, I think it's um, not inaccurate to say that in a certain way, for a time, the Holy Spirit was the forgotten person of the Holy Trinity. In fact, if you look back at, at some old prayers, you'll often see mention of the Father and of Jesus and then of Our Lady, mm-hmm. but a neglect of the Holy Spirit. Well, in fact, we Protestants but, pointed to you Catholics and said, see, you've made Mary a part of the Trinity. <laughs> yes, yes, and of course they were misunderstanding. <laughs> exactly. But there, there was a real problem that, that they may have been recognizing. But really, the past century or so has been a time of, of a reawakening of the Church's awareness of the Holy Spirit. 
if you look back at the prayer that Pope John the Twenty-Third asked all Catholics to pray before the Council, he said, Lord, renew your wonders in this our day as by a new Pentecost. And in a way, the Second Vatican Council was a, a new opening of the windows and doors of the Church to the Holy Spirit. And then Pope John Paul II continued that, and he said, there's a need for a, a spirituality of Pentecost spread throughout the Church. And Pope Benedict XVI has, if anything, been even more explicit. He said at Pentecost last year, he said, I would like to extend this invitation to everyone. Let us rediscover, dear brothers and sisters, the beauty of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Let us be aware again of our baptism and our confirmation, sources of grace that are always present. Let us ask the Virgin Mary to obtain a renewed Pentecost, for the Church again today, a Pentecost that will spread in everyone the joy of living and witnessing to the Gospel. I think when people discover the reality of the Holy Spirit as a kind of missing link in their life as Catholics, in their, in their spiritual life, there's a, a tremendous awakening that occurs, a, a setting of the heart on fire. It brings a new joy, a new zeal, to witness to Christ, to, to share the gospel with other people, and also a new recognition that the process of growth and holiness is not so much something we do, but something the Holy Spirit does in us with which we cooperate. And that's really tremendously freeing in a way. Um, I experienced that freedom in my own life because for a long time I saw progress in holiness as something that was mainly my responsibility. I had to do my spiritual push-ups, and I had to, you know, gain virtue and put off vice. And basically, I experienced tremendous failure in doing that, which led to low self-esteem and led to frustration. <clears throat> but then I, I began to recognize and, and be aware of how the Holy Spirit is basically imparting to me the power and the cross and of the cross and resurrection of Jesus that he's making the life of Jesus present in me. And in a way, that's, it's not that it requires less from me, it requires more from me, but it's a more of yielding. It, it's a more of surrendering yes. to the work of the Holy Spirit within me. That, and I think it's exactly what Paul is talking about in, in this chapter. Let me, and let me make a correction to something that may have been misunderstood when I said, when I quoted Father Gary Legrand earlier, when he says, that in the ways of God, he who does not progress loses ground. He is not, as, as you said, calling us, okay, it's up to me to progress. If anything, what is calling them, a person to do, is to accept humility and to be open to the work of the Spirit in our lives, uh, recognizing that we haven't, I don't understand it all, uh, I'm not the smartest person in the world, I don't know better what's true than the church, um, I mean, there's always those dangers, and uh, and I remember, you know, myself being very much in, in a part of the charismatic community back when I was a Protestant minister, and then and off and on as a Catholic, recognizing the beauties of it, but also at the same time that the devil imitates, and so at the same time we see an awakening of the Holy Spirit, we also, the, you know, the, the the enemy awoke too and didn't like that, and so that's why we've got to make sure that. The idea of having the Spirit within me does not therefore mean that we 
have all wisdom and don't need the church. Uh, no, it means an even more surrendering to make sure that we're following the church and not following our own uh, understanding of things. We might be wrong. Yes, right. In fact, it, it's just the opposite, because it's the Holy Spirit who gives birth to the church. Yes. It's, it's the Holy Spirit who inspires and guides the, the authority of the church, and the whole um, structure of the church that the Lord created is itself enlivened by, animated by, moved by the Holy Spirit. So, you know, to pose a kind of disjuncture between the charismatic and the institutional, as some people do, and, and say, you know, now I'm filled with the Spirit, I don't need um, priests or bishops or sacraments or anything like that, is a profound misunderstanding of, of the, the order that is present in the New Testament, that the or, of the order that's been present in the Church throughout her whole history. It seems to me that there's a, a good distinction in verse 12 and the end of 16 when Paul says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God. In the end, we have the mind of Christ. I would encourage you, audience, not too quickly to just jump to that I have received or I have the mind of Christ. That's true. But what's really significant is recognizing, as Paul always does, that we are a part of the body. We have received this together individually but together and so the reception of the holy spirit means that you mary and i are brothers and sisters it's not i have the spirit and you have the spirit but we have the spirit that's right and as paul will talk about later in first corinthians the holy spirit distributes his varying gifts as he wills some of those gifts are of course gifts of authority Uh, paul talks about apostles and pastors and teachers um, and, of course, the successors of apostles are uh, bishops today. But then he also talks about other charisms that are given to, to every one of the faithful so that the members of the body of Christ will be dependent on each other, so that the Holy Spirit will be working not only um, in each person as an individual, but, but through one another, like the, the blood in a human body circulating throughout the body so that there's oxygen being brought to the whole body. Well, That's you know, the way we're meant to experience the Spirit. Well, thank you, Mary. You know, we're, as you said from your dissertation, there's a lot we can cover in this passage, but not, not enough time. So thank you for joining us. And you have, to, have to have you back. All right? All right. Sounds sure. good, especially maybe when you get the next volume of that commentary out, we can talk about that. Thank you for your words, and thank all of you for joining us on this program on EWTN. I pray that our discussions together have been encouragement to you to be guided by the Spirit within the confines of the beautiful church He's given to us. God bless you. See you soon.